0: May the words of my mouth, and meditation of my heart, be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it. I am not worthy to unloose. St. John chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. In today's gospel, We are all invited to be spectators, as St. John the Baptizer is put on trial for his life. An official delegation of priests and Levites had trudged out to the wilderness to see just what exactly was going on with this strange man demanding repentance and ritual cleansing. These interrogators were the official representatives of the temple, the priests who, being those who presided over the daily sacrifice, the Levites, their assistants. These men were the living embodiments of the greatest religion the world had ever known. But they were also desperately compromised by their collaboration with the Roman Empire, who by this time was choosing the temple's high priest as a fail-safe within a wider program of measured toleration of the strange Hebrew religion, a useful program as long as it kept the Jews in check. St. John the Baptizer was upsetting the religious and political balance by claiming an authority unregulated by the temple, and thus unregulated by Rome. Any kind of popular uprising, even if doomed to failure, when me Rome would simply find a new group of collaborators picked from the rubble of whatever was left after they made an example of those who dared stand against her and her legions. These questions, then, asked in rapid-fire succession are not just esoteric theological musings from people who don't have anything better to do. no. This interrogation, this questioning of St. John is deadly serious. As deadly serious as the one our Lord will receive on his way to the cross. For the same reasons. Who St. John the Baptizer thinks he is has massive importance in a world where there was no separation between politics and religion. We live in a very similar world today. Just this week, I saw an advertisement for prayer candles featuring a likeness of the recently departed Justice Ginsburg on them. But, I mean, she, there's a whole sets of them. She is just one of the many new mediators in the saintly ranks of those deemed on the right side of history. Otto von Bismarck, the German chancellor, said that politics is the art of the possible. But that which seems merely possible has never and will never be enough to fill and inspire the hearts of men. No, it is faith and trust in what seems impossible which drives the world. Whether we believe in the workers' paradise or even the free world, we are being asked or forced to seek an aspirational heaven no man has ever lived in a heaven which requires sacrifice, devotion, and ritual to make them real. And one need only fire up an internet browser to see so very much sacrifice and devotion and ritual, so much evangelism and passion, not even for these dreams, but rather for the uncaring fleshly idols we hope will bring us to this promised land. This long-standing lean toward idolatry is why we are so much more comfortable talking about politics than the saving truth of Christ. I found myself falling into this exact habit yesterday when I was at a wreath uh, a, uh, a laying for the uh, uh, wounded, for, for our veterans. I was talking to a fellow believer, and rather than talk about the victory Jesus has won for the both of us, what did we talk about? Elections, politics, right? It isn't because we are irreligious. That's not the reason. Humans, in fact, can't be irreligious. We are built by God to be the recipients of his love, to dwell with him. And no matter how hard we suppress this part of our design, our right devotion will simply move to a new thing to worship with our time and our treasure and our trust. No, we are more comfortable talking about politics because it is an accepted religion. Seductive in its immediacy and power, intoxicating in its ability to make us feel as if we are in control. And if we think we are in control, then we think we can safely compromise with evil. Not as good citizens doing their best to be at peace with the corrupt men and women who lead us. Not as that, but rather as pawns in a rigged game meant to distract us from the real work of being a peculiar people, zealous of good works, strangers and pilgrims, salt and light. St. John today, St. John the Baptizer today, shows us in his answer to these questions, what it means to reject compromise even if it kills us. How much easier would it have been for St. John to have corroborated with the religious authorities who came out there? He could have just toned down his rhetoric and made common cause with these powerful men who held his life in their hands, the men who would scheme with their ruler, Herod Antipas, to eventually have him decapitated. Instead, what does he say to them? O generation of vipers, who hath warned thee to flee from the coming wrath." Calling people the children of Satan has never been a very good way to make friends or triangulate power. But St. John is entirely uninterested in becoming a celebrity or a thought leader, a senator or president. We see this utter unwillingness to become the focus of the Trinity's mission to save the world in his solemn denials of all the prophetic titles his inquisitors offer him. Each denial revealing a growing in sort of indignation that these people are more concerned about who he might be than what he is announcing. How much power could St. John have grabbed for himself if he just said, I am the Christ? Or, as is more common in our own day, How much power could he have grabbed for himself if he had just acted like he was the Christ? Sure, it wouldn't have been true. But think about how many more followers and influence and power he could have gathered around himself. After all, isn't that how we are told things get done in the world? Not by baptizing people, not by calling sinful, powerful men to repent, not by praying that God's will be done at his own time. No, we get things done by gaining power and followers and flexing our muscles. That's how things get done. We get things done by fighting and winning, not by being martyrs in solidarity with losers like St. John. Or at least I should say that's what we are told again and again and again by dying world. Desperate to gain our participation in its madness. Desperate to get us to raise our hands, along with everyone else volunteering to die for nothing. And sadly, this madness is what we see modeled in so many churches and political groups which seek our allegiance. And sadly, what we are seeing is just one more stage in a false religion which has replaced word and sacrament, humility and patience with the terrible gods of entertainment, manipulation, emotion, and finally violence. If worship is all about the feelings I get inside me, then those feelings have become my God. The emotional response has been this cruel, almighty taskmaster to whom I am most devoted. And I will chase this feeling wherever it leads me. Tragically, we begin to believe if this God inside of us that if we can just feel enough, scream enough, want it enough, we can make things happen in the world. We can make our favorite politicians win, or make ourselves less sad, or make more money, or feel less guilty, or all the other crushing burdens this dying world puts on our shoulders that are not ours to bear. In this world of instant gratification, in a world where we are daily told to act like little gods, we just don't have time to wait for the true God to act. We don't have time for any second advent that's coming. No time for a general resurrection of the dead. We don't have time for a new heaven and a new earth where every tear is wiped away forever. No. I feel hurt now. I see injustice now. And I want to feel better now. And so I will find a God who will give me what I want now. And this false religion... There isn't any room for prophets who won't step up and perform for us. There any room for a God who dies on a cross. And there certainly isn't any room for us to take up our cross and die alongside him. Of course, there's also no hope in this false religion. There is only the dark terror which waits for us when all those false gods abandon us. And they all will. Where then can we draw true hope? Our hope does not come from self-righteous marches or temporary saviors. Our hope comes from the unshakable promises of God. We need nothing else. And our desire for more is a symptom of our fallenness. A sin for us to repent, not a need for some church to fill with tricks and gimmicks and idols. God has nothing to prove to us today or tomorrow or the next day. He doesn't need to win our allegiance because he has already won our salvation in Christ. Death is dead. How do we not say that more often? How is that not just written in our hearts and our speech? Death is dead. And we need no longer fear its despair, and its application in our lives. It's dead. Yes, it's been 2,000 years since God dramatically demonstrated his sovereign authority over life and death and the resurrection of Christ and his victory. And maybe it will be another 2,000 years until the victorious Messiah returns in his second advent to raise his elect and the damned from the graves. But we are not called to speed things up because we're so special. The truth is we aren't special. If St. John the Baptizer, the prophesied harbinger of the kingdom of God, if he calls himself merely a voice whose only role is to announce the coming Messiah, if he compares himself to a slave unworthy to remove a dirty sandal from the Messiah's feet, where does that put you and I? For me, it would go something like, Hi, I'm Father Richard, and I'm not worthy to sideways glance at the one who's unworthy to unloose the sandal of my Messiah. The preposterous idea fed to us again and again that we are too good for the worshipful waiting of the saints who came before us. That has to leave our lives forever. It's a cancer. We have to purge it from our church and from our hearts. We are privileged, privileged to live in this age of mercy wherein we find ourselves. The age in which we can hear the word of God and taste his sacraments and know it's all true because God has shown us the truth in Christ. That is a privilege we should thank God every day for. This age in which we can go out into the world and tell our friends and neighbors and enemies, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him that taketh away the sin of the world. What a privilege! When we are united with the Lamb's sacrifice for our sins, we can add add our our voice joyfully to that of the baptizers. We can add our voices to all those crying in this falling wilderness until Christ returns to give us something so much better than a temporary peace so we can better enjoy our things. Christ is returning to give us joy and love which never ends a new world where lives forever the joy and love we have been waiting for, real joy and love. Let us then be humble, let us be patient, and let us have the strength to lose in the eyes of the world, for we have already forever won in the victory of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.